the global economy is heading toward a recession, and you'll see headlines about that. And you'll see people say, we're for sure heading for a global recession. That should not imply that we're for sure heading for a United States recession. I think you and I both agree completely on the global recession is a reality. We're probably already in it. The United States is likely to have a recession in the next 18 months sometime. By likely, we would say much higher than 50%. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. And good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting second hour of The Personal Wealth Coach, where we will say things as exciting as inflationary pressure or demand destruction. Or interest rates. Yes, Uh, Very interesting things that we talk about, or at least the interest is interesting. Um, It is doing its job being an interest, but it's less interesting than it would seem to be by its name. Well, we can stimulate the market by lowering interest rates. Sure. Yeah, we could do that. We we could be really, really boring, and the rate of interest in our program would just go way, way Mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. I think we're already doing that. Oh, okay. I okay. think that's our, our, our normal, it's our standard. It is our status quo is that we have lowered interest in economics. So our interest rates are down. Therefore, we have stimulated the economy and have directly fought the Fed in its efforts to fight inflation. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, we have a bunch of other questions. Inquisitor John's got two of them waiting for us, and we put him off to the second hour, even though he is the most loyal questioner we have. We're uh, we're giving you top billing, not giving you last in line. How's that? Uh, the, the top band of the evening always plays last. So your questions, one of them has to do with the strain on the grid, the electric grid for uh, charging electric vehicles. And the other one has to do with the Federal Reserve. So I think we should both answer both of these rather than I take one and you take another. What do you say to that? Go ahead. Okay. So we're going to touch the grid first, but not with not without grounding ourselves on something. We may use some rubber gloves and boots in the process, but we will now touch the grid. <laughs> yeah, don't don't recommend that, actually. The question he has is, haven't heard anything about increasing the grid to support all these needed chargers. And there's a circled paragraph saying there is clearly a big white space for EV charging in the U.S. If half of all vehicles sold are zero emission vehicles by 2030, where's that coming from? That's from most of the major car manufacturers are predicting that. They're in line with federal targets. The U.S. would require 1.2 million public EV chargers and 28 million private EV chargers by then. Um, That's according to uh, McKinsey, who is a, um, it doesn't say in the article piece that was sent here, uh, that would be roughly 20 times the 2021 levels in short. Okay, his question is, how is that going to affect the grid? Uh, How is the grid going to get impacted? improved to make that work well. Ah, we have a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built between now and then. 
the first thing I'm going to say is that electric vehicle charging has the potential to be a much lower strain logistically on the United States than the current system. Just because it has the potential to be better doesn't mean it will be. Well, how is it better? How is it that we're talking about half vehicle chargers, half of all vehicles being electric vehicles? How is that not going to be a big strain on logistics? Our electric grid's going to be in trouble from that. Well, when you're driving on the highway, presume that, presuming that you do, you should notice a bunch of cylindrical tank trucks going down the, the road, going out to individual gas stations across the country and filling them up, their underground tanks, with gasoline and with diesel. That is a logistical nightmare. If you were to look at that in any kind of a big picture way, the number of trucks required to transport that liquid fuel from either from a, uh, a pipeline output point or from directly from a refiner. And it affects the prices of gasoline uh, in remote areas and areas that are closer to refineries in California, it's just got a really nasty setup. So they're a good example to look at to say, all right, how will this affect California? Because they're the ones that are putting forth the, the biggest push. We got to get the electric. If they can build the charging stations fast enough and they can bring on the capacity to create more electricity to fuel those things, the savings on the overall economy are tremendous. A lot less trucks. It's a very inefficient way of getting fuel from one place to another by truck. It's just incredibly inefficient compared to an electric line. But we don't have the capacity in our electric grid to run the, electric, the, the extra electricity to the places that need it for charging. So we've got to build the infrastructure, but that infrastructure is a lot less expensive than buying tanker trucks to take gas from one spot to another. Will this all work well? Will it all get coordinated in a way that makes the electric grid more efficient and the infrastructure charging stations? Probably not. Because maybe on the private side, and we're already seeing that in, in California, by the way, private charging stations are far more efficient and far more of them than was expected compared to their initial estimates on, you know, the government's going to build some. And the reality is the government didn't go out and build gas stations. So why the government should go out and buy or build charging stations is absurd. Uh, it needs to be for-profit businesses that do this, and they need to have the ability of building electric capacity. Just as an example, in Texas, uh, we have a big Tesla plant in Austin, just outside of Austin. It's huge. It is absolutely ginormous. You drive at 85 miles an hour on the toll road outside there, and you're driving by the place for five minutes. That's how big it is. It's really big. Well, isn't that causing brownouts in Austin? How is it that this massive facility exists without causing electric grid brownouts constantly in Austin? And the answer is they built their own electric plant right next door. 
And this is what uh, refiners do. This is what uh, foundries do when you're producing aluminum. That's a, a tremendous electric cost. And part of the reason why Alcoa, among others, stopped producing electricity in the United States is they had built up their foundries in places where it was easiest to get coal, not places that it was easiest to get natural gas. So they would have to completely dismantle one plant and completely recreate it somewhere else closer to natural gas. And they just said, that's too much money. We won't be able to recoup the cost when the Chinese plants were built next to cheaper electricity. When we're talking about charging stations on a for-profit basis, I would expect to see less uh, integrated uh, electric manufacturing. I would, I would expect to see dedicated electric manufacturing to be what we, what we see in the future, where they will build the ability on, on a small grid uh, infrastructure, very much like a railroad style, style thing, where the railroad doesn't go to your house this line would only go to charging stations. And if it's a for-profit business, they would need to look at that as part of their profit model. Um, and that's what I'm seeing. What I am not seeing right now is the actual planning to get any of this done. So we've got an eight-year window and it's going to take probably eight years to get it done. <laughs> and I don't see the planning in place to do it, except in places like California where they're already doing it and there's money available to do it. There's money available in the inflation protection bill, which is a misnomer because that's not what it did. Uh, but there's money in it to give grants to companies to begin this or low interest loans and so on. It, <laughs> do you want to add to this subject? I, I, well, I, I think let, let's back up a hundred years. A hundred years ago, the gasoline vehicle was being introduced and we did not have the infrastructure. We did not have filling stations. We did not have pipelines. We did not have ta big tanker trucks. We didn't have the highways to run the tanker trucks on. Yeah, people would literally moving on the railroads. People would literally order barrels of gasoline to be yes. delivered to their house. So through it railroad. takes a while, it takes a while in the supply and demand economy to build that up, but we'll, we're going to get there. The, the estimates are it will require 25% more electric generating capacity in the United States than we have today, probably. But there is an alternative to that, which isn't immediately available to us, but I think will be. And that is better storage facilities for electricity. Because what happens is the electric grid only operates at a relatively small percentage of its capacity at night. So if most people are charging at night, if they're given a discount to do that, we fill up the batteries at night when the electric grid is not being overly used and we have excess capacity and then drive during the day. That'll work really, really well. It'll be some combination of all that. Yeah. And one of the things, the software is available in these automobiles to allow them to conform to the grid. And if the grid is sending a signal to the, to the chargers out there, hey, it's a good time to charge. This is a priority charging time versus not. That software exists in the vehicles but doesn't exist in the grid yet so that's going to need to happen the other piece of this and this is maybe the biggest one if half of all new vehicles are going to be electric starting in 2030 which is the big deal this is what everybody's talking about people hear that in a mathematical sense that's incorrect 
people here, and I've heard people say this, they're going to take away my non-electric vehicle. Number one, that's incorrect. The government's not going to come and take your guns or your cars at this point. Nothing on the books that would allow them to. Uh, number two, it's half of new vehicles, which amounts to about half a percent of the vehicles in use at any given time are new vehicles. So when you think about it from that perspective, we, we're not going to have a sudden slam of electricity demand because you can't buy new vehicles or the, all the vehicles are sudden or half of all of the vehicles are suddenly electric. It's not going to be that fast. So when we talk about half of new vehicles sold being electric, that's, it's a government mandate. I, I'm kind of tend to want to say that let the companies decide based on demand, but the government gets involved in this stuff. So, and we need them to be involved to some extent. Um, the, the idea that people could go out in a vehicle with uh, spikes sticking out in every direction, no seat belts, and um, train horns, you, that might sound amazing, but the danger to everyone else on the road just went way up. So they have to come in and say, no, you got to have seatbelts. And yeah, you've got to have a bumper on your car. Uh, and, you know, the list of things, you've got to make sure that your oil's changed so you're not just spitting smoke in everybody's faces. Uh, those are things that over the years, I think everybody's kind of agreed, all right, the government has that capability. So when it comes to used vehicles versus new vehicles versus how much is electric and how much isn't, we got a lot of growth to do between now and 2030, but it's not the panic that people are, are making it into. They're going to take my car. Or I'm not going to allow to drive an older car or a car with internal combustion. Don't think that way because that's not on the books. It's not being suggested by either party, but it's really easy to make it sound like somebody's saying that. Um, and the next question what we have from John is a Federal Reserve question. Um, and he's got a, an article here, Risks of a Deeper Global Slump Escalate, Wall Street Journal article. And it's true. We've got an inverted yield curve. We've got huge chunks of the world economy that are absolutely on the downward slide. The GDP of China was supposed to get announced at the beginning of the week. And they said, we're delaying that. They're not fooling anyone, by the way. Uh, and this, there's a great article in the Financial Times about this. It's something that I've been talking about for months and months and months, years about China. In 2016, China had access, gave access to massive amounts of economic data, huge amounts of it. Uh, I could peruse to my heart, my little nerdly delight get in there and figure out what was going on in the economy of China. And since 2016, they stopped updating data or they just removed data series completely or the data that they've replaced it with is obviously fake. And it's kind of like if you're a doctor and you're looking at a heart rate monitor and you, they, the, uh, instead of having the little mountain, little uh, a big mountain, little mountain, you got a square. <laughs> you can tell that's not a normal heart. There's something wrong there. When we look at the data that's being presented from China, it's very clearly wrong. Even saying that one piece of data that they've been consistent about has been their GDP. 
And partly because the uh, Communist Party's Congress is meeting this week and they're instituting uh, Xi Jinping as a dictator for life, essentially, um, they decided not to announce their GDP. Why would they do that? I bet it isn't because it was a better than expected GDP number. What, what, do you, what is your thought on that? Their statement to the stock traders at the same time kind of reveals it. Stock traders were ordered by the strongly encouraged by the government. Uh, and if you don't listen to their encouragement, you get an all-expense-paid visit to a prison for several well, years. Well, you're strongly encouraged to go and live in prison. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and they, they strongly encourage stock traders not to sell stocks during the uh, party conference, the party convention. And so their markets have been going up very nicely because you are considered to be very loyal if you're buying stocks right now on the Chinese exchanges and very unloyal if you're selling stocks. Um, you know, I, would, I would guess that there's probably a negative GDP number in there somewhere. There's a, there's a, I say, I don't know if negative, but I, I would say the, a disappointing GDP number. And they certainly did not want that occupying the headlines during while there Xi's are coronation. Coronating, during a coronation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. that, that's it in a nutshell. And, but let me, let me talk about Chinese economy just a sec. The Chinese economy has maintained stability largely through artificial stimulation and assistance in purchasing real estate. Correct. They have, I have read reports from inside China that were from people who've been inside China that up to 85% of the paid for residences, paid for, people made loans and bought a residence, which is generally a condo, are incomplete. They haven't been finished, so they can't move in. And the government basically is propping them up and keeping this thing going. This eventually yeah. will collapse. And when it does collapse, it's not going to be a pretty picture. Somewhere between but 35 come back. somewhere between 35 and 40% of the Chinese economy is real estate. Yeah. Okay. So so the the article itself gives us a lot of food for for thought. Uh, his question is uh, there's a, a paragraph in here. Lending from the Fed's so-called discount window for emergency loans ticked up in recent weeks to $7.67 billion as of Wednesday, the highest level since June of 2020. His question is, what is a discount window? What is it? Well, this is another word for exactly when they're raising interest rates. It's the discount rate that they're raising. So let's take a step back. What is a discount window why is it called that? Who uses it? And what's this thing about emergency loans? I'm going to give you a quick uh, primer on the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve has reserve requirements for banks. They say you're not allowed to loan out more than 80% of your deposits. That would be a 20% loan reserve requirement. So they have to keep money on hand. And I think right now it is at 20%. I'll have to look at that for sure. I don't think they've changed it in the last six months. So the reserve requirement is there. This is part of the reason why the term bankers hours is still used. When they close their doors at three o'clock and you can't go into the bank, why are they doing that? The business day goes till five. Why, why are they closing at three? And the answer is because they may have a series of loan officers making independent loans. They're not talking to each other and saying, how much have you loaned out already today? Uh, I'll add that to what I'm doing. 
they have to consolidate and say, how much did we loan out today and did we go over the reserve requirement? Did we loan out 82% of our assets? Because we've got 12 guys or people giving loans out during the day. Did we do too much? If they did, they've got to come up with 2% extra liquid assets of their whole. How do they do that? Well, they go to the Federal Reserve Bank. And if you think about what used to happen when you went to a bank, you would go to a window. And that window, that window would be where you would get your loan or where you would make your deposit or your withdrawal. The Federal Reserve has a window for banks. Banks go to that window. And it's a discount window because the Federal Reserve charges less interest than another bank would. So the repo rates are generally higher than the Federal Reserve's discount rate. Not a lot higher, but it's basically, I won't get too much into that because repo's pretty much been taken over by the Fed too. So I used to be able to compare the two and say from a private bank, you're going to get charged 3.7%, uh, but the Federal Reserve will charge 3.5. So it's the discount window. And it's called an emergency loan because technically they're in violation of their reserve requirements if they end the business day with not enough money on hand. So they have to go and get these, I'm going to put air quotes around it, but it sounds better in a, in a paper calling it an emergency loan, but it's a loan that banks do daily. They go to the Federal Reserve almost daily with this stuff and they're doing it less from the private banks, the repo rate, and I'll go into some other time, I'll go into why it's called the repo rate. And that's the other private banks giving loans to each other rather than the Federal Reserve giving loans. I mentioned that the Federal Reserve has taken that over in a large part. So why would you go to the Federal Reserve and get a higher interest rate at the repo window than you could get at the discount window? So more banks are going to the discount window than the repo window, which is causing a $7.67 billion um, amount loan. Uh, that's not $7.67 billion higher it is in the range of normal trading. So the amount of loans that banks are receiving is not higher than it was in June 2020, which is what is being implied here. All of that is saying, what is the discount window? It's where banks go at the Federal Reserve to get an overnight loan to make sure they're meeting their reserve requirements. And man, that was a technical and boring answer unless you're interested in it. And then you're like, well, that was amazing. Why don't they say this all the time? Yeah. The other thing that's important to note is 7.6 billion, 7.67 billion, Jake mentioned this, is a rounding error for the loan activity that occurs on a given day. It is so insignificant as to be um, peanuts. 6.5 billion lent to two foreign central banks last week. Again, just tiny amounts of money. And I realize that 7.67 billion sounds like a lot of money, but we're talking about, I'm not, and I'm not joking here, Trillions of dollars of transactions per day. Uh, so M2, money supply. So this is the money sitting in banks. This is, it's got mm -hmm. some money markets in there too, but it's mostly sitting in banks. There's about $21.6 trillion as the assets that these loans are being made on. So when you've got 21, let's just call it thousand and call the billions right. just one. Right. So if you've got $8 in loans on a $21,000 deposit. This is not a warning sign. 
this is this is a this is just a normal part of day-to-day operations so it's easy to make it sound that way when you say discount window emergency loans but they're only emergency in the fact that they've got to be done before the close of business that's why they close their doors at three they've got two hours to make these so go ahead it's an important thing to notice and and note when you read or when you try to follow financial news or any other kind of news for that matter. And that is the purpose of a news media system, a medium, uh, whether it is NBC, CNBC, Fox, CBS, uh, whoever, or a digital newspaper or a print newspaper is to sell advertising. Advertising is sold by the number of people who are looking at the page. Negative information causes people to look at the page about eight times more than positive information. So if you're in the business of selling advertising based on getting people to look, you post shocking negative information. So there is a heavy bias in any form of news media towards the negative. Now, let me take that one step further. The Wall Street Journal I have found to have among the lower biases in that area uh, as does the Economist and the Financial Times. That doesn't mean they're example. without bias. It just means they have lower biases. And yeah. the reason is they charge a significant. They charge enough money for a subscription, even a digital subscription, which doesn't cost them anything to run presses, um, that they don't have to be as totally enslaved to the advertisers as the news media. The news side of things doesn't have to be totally enslaved to the advertisers. But everybody who writes for any or speaks for any version of online or print news is fully aware of the fact that their paycheck comes from making advertisers happy, not readers. And advertisers are happy when a lot of people are looking at the page their ad is on. So there is a tendency to lean towards the shocking negative. It has been amplified dramatically by free media. In other words, the Wall Street Journal didn't used to be in competition with much of anything. Uh, They had a couple of overseas newspapers that were published in the United States, like the Financial Times, which, by the way, was on yellow paper, which was sort of fascinating. And and they they had very conservative, balanced news. They are in competition now with everybody and their cousins' free online news services. And if you go to the free online news services and then you go back to one that you pay for, like the Wall Street Journal online, and look at the same story, it's sometimes shocking to see the difference between the two. If you want to really look at something that I think is fascinating, look at the Wall Street Digital Wall Street Journal, which I do, then look at, uh, then go over and look at uh, Fox and then go over and look at the New York Times or CNBC, the same story. And it's really, to me, fascinating to see the variant that occurs in there of the spin they put on the same story. And I think it's an educational thing, and I encourage people to do that just to see all points of view on it, which is, by the way, why we quote the Wall Street Journal so frequently, because that and the Financial Times and and, and, and The Economist generally give a middle position where they're trying to take everything into account. So that's why we go there. It's a long story. Yeah, uh, It's not to say that Fox doesn't have good reporting at times and the New York Times doesn't have good reporting at times that other people don't have, or the Washington Post for that matter, which is significantly further left than the, even the New York Times. Excellent. 
Anyway. Fantastic. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the Personal Wealth Coach being our title. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also <laughs> have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally, voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.